Welcome to the Development Policy Centre podcast. We are all touched by slavery, according to Ambassador Louis C. DeBaca, one of the most decorated federal prosecutors in the United States. Previously Ambassador at Large and Senior Advisor to the Secretary of State on Trafficking in Persons, Ambassador Cedar Barker built his litigation into policy, transforming US anti-trafficking efforts and including the voices of victims, workers and communities in decision-making. In this podcast of a seminar he gave at ANU, he shares insights from his distinguished career combating labour exploitation and human trafficking in global supply chains, and discusses decent work as a development and counter-trafficking objective. Thank you, everybody, for, for, for coming. Um, I'd just like to start by saying that uh, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respect to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. Thank you all very much for coming. Um, this event today is being uh, co-hosted by the Transnational Research Institute on Corruption and the Development Policy Centre, um, and we are very fortunate to have with us here Ambassador Louis, Louis de Baca, um, and he'll be speaking to us about his recent research. Um, he'll share insights from his very distinguished career as a lawyer and diplomat and now researcher uh, combating labour exploitation and human trafficking in global supply chains. Um, Ambassador DeBacca will speak about uh, speak to decent work as a development and counter-trafficking uh, objective, looking at a particular case study, the Coalition of Imakale. Imakale. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Workers' Fair Food Campaign in the US. Uh, now, uh, Ambassador DeBacca graduated from Iowa State uh, University in the early 1990s and attended the University of Michigan Law School, um, where he was the editor of the Michigan Law Review. He is a recipient of quite a number of awards, including the Secretary of State's Distinguished Honor Award, the Attorney General's Distinguished Service Award, the Attorney General's John Marshall Award, and the Director's Award from the Executive Office of the United States Attorneys. I hope you've got a very n nice uh, cabinet or something to put those in. Um, and uh, he has served uh, in the Obama administration as ambassador at large and senior advisor to the Secretary of State on Trafficking in Persons and is one of the United States' most decorated, as you could um, uh, understand from that, that list of awards, federal prosecutors. He has built his litigation record into policy, transform, transforming US anti-trafficking anti uh, efforts and including victims of voices of victims, workers and communities in decision making. So all that is a long way of introducing um, our very honoured guest and uh, making welcome. Thank you. Thank Ambassador. you. Um, I realised uh, that as I was sitting here that I was kind of hiding behind this um, screen, so I feel like I'm kind of popping out um, <laughs> onto the stage. Um, well, first of all, thank you uh, to Australian National University and, and um, I too uh, definitely I'd uh, like to, to recognize, acknowledge, and, and thank uh, not only the Aboriginal people um, of this valley and, and of this region, uh, but all of the people who have suffered uh, and bled and died to make uh, this country uh, of Australia, um, whether it was South Sea Islanders uh, who were brought here uh, either kidnapped uh, through blackbirding whether, uh, or through false pretenses, uh, whether it's uh, folks from the Indian subcontinent, uh, whether it's even convict uh, labor uh, from England and otherwise, that the uh, level of uh, tears uh, that this country is drenched in um, is uh, seconded perhaps only by the level of tears that my country uh, is drenched in. And so I think not only acknowledging the, the people 
uh, of this land, but acknowledging uh, what it has taken to get us to the point where we can be uh, in such a wonderful university that's doing such cutting edge work uh, and preparing people to do uh, work around the world that appeals to our best values. Uh, and I do think that that's the case. I think that we have to, uh, the only way that we can actually reach those values that we see in ourselves as Americans, and I think that y'all here in Australia also see uh, in yourselves as far as what you can bring to the world, whether it's through a development portfolio, whether it's through diplomacy, uh, whether it's really having those values of uh, rule of law and ability to uh, to build something up, to, to have property rights uh, in a meaningful way, uh, and individual freedoms and individual opportunities uh, only can be looked at if we actually not only look at the best parts of ourselves, but sometimes also have to look at uh, ourselves on some of our worst days. And so um, in that spirit, um, I uh, hope that uh, we can somehow honor the folks uh, who uh, came here um, wondering what was going to happen to them, wondering if they would ever uh, be able to make the life that they had wanted, uh, as well as the people uh, who welcomed them here and very quickly found out that uh, things might not be going uh, quite as well as, as it could be with the new arrivals. Uh, we have that in the United States, and I think that that's certainly part of uh, who we are and, and, and what we have to look at. And it's one of the reasons why the United States uh, takes this modern fight against slavery so seriously. Uh, my former boss, when I was working on the Judiciary Committee in, in the U.S. Congress, um, always said that uh, this is a debt that we owe that's written in the blood of the millions of people who lived and died uh, in slavery uh, in the United States, not knowing if there was ever going to be today when they or their children would see freedom. And so when people would ask me, well, why does the United States have uh, a uh, anti-slavery ambassador? Why do you go around the world and talk to people about what they need to do, especially when you have your own problems at home? Um, part of it is, to me, the bigger question is, why did we go for more than 200 years as a country without having an anti-slavery ambassador? And I think that the same question uh, certainly should be on the table uh, here in Australia. It's a great time in Australia because of the energy that's around this uh, Modern Slavery uh, Act, the legislative uh, proposals that are out there, a lot of uh, drafting going on, a lot of ideas being brought in. Um, but I think it also, it's, it's an exciting time because we're talking about a little bit of a reconceptualization of this concept of whether you want to call it human trafficking, slavery, etc. Now, let's talk a little bit about what it is that I'm, I like to talk, think of this as as my what do we talk about when we talk about trafficking slide. Um, so human trafficking is kind of a modern word um, that um, in many ways became the industry standard uh, for discussing this um, with the passage of, or the enactment of the Palermo Protocol, the United Nations um, Protocol um, from the year 2000. And the discourse around human trafficking historically had often been around the migrant prostitutes. Um, so you had this term, and it was a, a term in vogue in the British Empire, that comes out of the 1880 law called the White Slave Trafficking Act that makes it illegal to move somebody for prostitution from one country to another. And that becomes the word for the Palermo Protocol in no small part because the thing that was getting a lot of countries to care about this in the 1990s was the perceived westward wave of sex workers from the former Soviet empire into Europe and the abuse and exploitation that they were going through. Now, what was interesting is there was also a westward wave of men from the former Soviet empire that were headed 
to Western Europe, and they got abused and exploited. Um, but they were abused and exploited on job sites, on construction, on agriculture, etc. And people didn't see them in their local brothel or on their local strip club or this or that. It wasn't as visible. And so there's this entire thing called the Natasha trade, which is, I so always have to put my quotes around it because I find it fairly offensive, um, that this idea of that this was a problem, once again, of women from the former Soviet Union uh, being taken to the West. Um, it's very redolent of the 1880s. There was an awful lot of extremely racist um, uh, stuff done in the 1880s um, in Britain um, about women from the UK being bought and sold to Arabs, in, in, or even worse, the French, um, in order to uh, be in prostitution. And so this idea of the white slave trafficking scandals of the 1880s, um, if you want to see a modern depiction of them, even down to the fact of having somebody from the Arab world uh, there to auction uh, or to, to bid on a uh, fresh white girl uh, for uh, transshipment to Arabia, uh, you can look at the movie Taken, um, which is a great movie, but it is not a documentary about human trafficking. Um, so trafficking, slavery. In the American context, what we're really looking at is how can we staying true to being good lawyers and knowing that there are different words mean different things, how can we strip this down to what the core is, the, the lived experience of the victim? Because if you're doing development work, if you're doing international law enforcement work, you have to start with the communities that you're either trying to protect or that you're trying to, to advance. And what are their lived experiences? I mean, I probably end up sounding a little more like an anthropologist than I am like a former uh, prosecutor on all of this. But What's the point of going in and trying to vindicate people's rights in court if you haven't actually stopped to think about what their, their lived experience was? Um, and so rather than us grafting on, well, here's the word trafficking and it means moving prostitutes across international borders. Here's the term servitude and it somehow is different than the word slavery, which is the pertinences, all the pertinences of ownership. But then there's like these concepts of slavery-like practices and practices similar to slavery. And if anybody can tell me what the difference between those two concepts is, I do have at least one Australian dollar that I can give you. At the end of the day, this is, I think, the only thing that you need to know. Acquiring and managing a labor force through threats, through force, through coercion, through psychological manipulation. Or if it's a person, a child in prostitution, simply having them in your employ. Um, when you think of it this way, then, Movement drops out. You don't have to show that this is something of movement. And a lot of our friends in the development community and a lot of our friends, especially serving children in the UN system, got really hinked up on this. And so you'd end up having UNICEF saying, oh, well, this isn't child trafficking because they're just a bunch of kids who are being held in brothels in this country and they haven't been put on a boat to go to that other country. Or this is just forced labor here in Nigeria but as soon as they see the children on a boat coming in from Benin, then they say, oh, movement. Then that's that human trafficking stuff. Why is this important? Well, one of the reasons why it's important is because of the Palermo Protocol of the UN, and I'll get to this in a second. The Palermo Protocol says that countries should have a tripartite approach to human trafficking. And this is a different tripartite approach than what the International Labor Organization will tell us that you have to have for forced labor. The ILO's tripartite approach basically says that you need to have government, employer, and workers through a union working together to solve almost any problem. And if it's not a tripartite approach, then it's not kind of the ILO 
uh, way of thinking about labor. And that's been very much kind of the, the default for forced labor, not just as far as responses, um, but as far as development projects as well. Now, that same dollar that I bet anybody that could tell me the difference between slavery-like practices and practices similar to slavery, I will also give anybody a dollar if they can prove to me that pulling a nine-year-old child out of an artisanal mine, in other words, a hole in the ground, in West Africa by a rope that they've been lowered down there eight hours ago so that they could get the things that allow these to work, coltan, tantalum, etc. Pulling that child out and having somebody from the government and having the boss that beat up the kid, maybe even bought it from his parents and put it down in that hole, having a tripartite process at that point, I think, shows that this idea of the ILO tripartite approach is good in capital. It might be good for development projects and certainly good in Geneva, but is it good for that child? Is it good when we're talking about the point of the spear? Or are we talking about something that has to be looked at through this lens? If I can do this and make my laser work. That lens right there. And I think this is one of the things that a lot of folks over the years, including people in the, that would think of themselves in the trafficking movement, but definitely people who think of themselves in development, have often wrestled with. Because the trafficking folks show up, everybody's doing development work, everybody's thinking about whether it's the ILO tripartite model or what have you, um, or UNICEF is saying, well, this is a problem of you know, children being moved on these boats from Benin or um, you know, kids in Haiti being taken across to the, to the Dominican Republic. And so we think of that, and we also think of, well, how do we do a, a project in which we are not going to involve those guys from law enforcement? Because in the human rights context, a lot of times, many times, maybe even most of the times, the guys from law enforcement, are they in the solution box or are they in the problem box? I think that a lot of us that do work in this area realize even if we're trying to come at it from a law enforcement standpoint, that the law enforcement is more often than not in many places part of the problem rather than part of the solution. So the human trafficking lens, the modern slavery lens, in some ways comes in from a different, as, a different angle than a lot of other folks in development and other parts of human rights, because it actually says one of the things that people need is access to justice. I think that that's, to me, one of the most radical things that the human trafficking um, world comes in with. Um, back to this just for one second. This is where, when I say radical and human trafficking, some of these concepts are actually pretty radical. They say, it doesn't matter where you're from. If you are enslaved, if you are illegally present in the country, if you are even committing crimes every day in the country, but you were enslaved, then you are a victim of a Yuskosian's international human rights law violation. And that trumps, or it should trump, everything. So who cares if you were in cannabis production and you're a 16-year-old Vietnamese kid who's violating British law by working in that little cannabis factory? You have been enslaved, and so you should be protected, even if you're not a UK citizen. This idea of maintaining is as bad as obtaining is very important, especially in the sex industry. Sex trafficking manifests itself differently in, in Australia to some degree because of the way that you regulate uh, brothels. And yet, just because one has regulated brothels does not mean that there's not an underground sex industry 
And it also doesn't mean that the people who are in the regulated brothels might not be getting abused by their bosses. It's not illegal to be a domestic servant of a diplomat in the United States, and yet they get enslaved. It's not illegal to be a guy working nights cleaning a factory floor in the United States, and yet they get enslaved. So the fact that it's legal in some circumstances here in Australia to be in prostitution does not mean that they have somehow rid that sector of the economy from exploitation and abuse. But this is where this shows up a lot. A lot of people would have us believe that trafficking is forcing someone to work, and that's true. But it's really forcing someone to continue your work. A lot of people are looking for that victim from the movie Taken. They're looking for the kidnapped virgin, if, if you pardon the, the, the crassness. The reality, especially with transnational prostitution, is often that that person may have been a prostitute in their home country. And yet, whether it's the FBI, whether it's the AFP, whether it's local cops, etc., a lot of them will look at sex trafficking cases and they'll say, oh, well, she is a prostitute back home. Which is pretty irrelevant when it really comes down to it. I'm a patron of many banks, which does not mean that I am somehow setting myself up to be the victim of the bank robbery. And I think that that's one of the things that we always have to look at, which is it's holding them. You have to look at where it is if they wanted to leave, if they tried to leave, if they wanted to have other options, and could they? So if you have somebody who is in the same place, never, never left their home, um, but is being held through some type of course of force, at that point, you've got a trafficking victim. Um, what that does, then, when you come out and you look at kind of what the legal structures around the world are, um, is you have these kind of commonalities. Inability to leave service, use of vulnerabilities, use of force and threats. Um, a lot of the things we slice and dice this by are the types and quantum of coercion. How much coercion and what type of coercion are we going to say is so bad? Because we are trying to figure out what is the difference between just your everyday crappy job and being enslaved. Um, and that's one of the things that lawyers have to think about. That's one of the things that victim services providers have to think about. That's one of the things that policymakers have to think about. Because the reality in modern capitalism is that there are some crappy jobs. I mean, that's just kind of the reality of life. Um, one person's crappy job might be somebody's opportunity for the best job they ever had. Um, but none of those jobs should involve ongoing sexual abuse and harassment. None of those jobs should involve force, threats of force, threats of legal coercion, inability to leave, going somewhere else. Um, and so one of the things that I think that you see, hopefully, with this, these definitions is this idea that, well, immigration and movement are important because they're proxies for vulnerabilities, that they are themselves not the heart of this crime. There may be the vulnerability that ends up resulting in it being easier to hold somebody as a slave. Um, so the Palermo Protocol, I mentioned this a few minutes ago. The Palermo Protocol is known as Palermo Protocol merely because it was signed there uh, in, the, in the December of 2000. It was a real change up for us because the preceding two years we were, we were involved in something we called the Vienna negotiations and suddenly we had to like switch over to Palermo. Um, but it was winter and we'd rather be in Sicily as opposed to, to Vienna. What does the Palermo Protocol do? Well, it basically enshrines the American 
approach of what we call the three Ps. The three Ps, which says that prevention, protection, and prosecution are interlocking necessities. That that approach has to be what governs the fight against human trafficking. Back when human trafficking was thought of as transnational cross-border prostitution, you were in a situation where the victims, first of all, you barely called them victims, you called them foreign prostitutes. The victims were something that you wanted to rid yourself of because they had basically violated the sovereignty of the border. Um, I'll use the whiteboard for a second, because um, I love whiteboards, they put this one. Um, let me get the corruption out of the way. Exactly. If it was so easy as to just pick it up, we'd be done a long time. So this is that 1880s white slave trafficking model. And this is the Palermo Protocol model of the three Ps. This is a border. Pardon my art. That's supposed to be a microprostitute. Um, and let's interrogate while I'm drawing for a moment just that entire concept of, of prostitute. Um, you know, for so many places and so many times, that ends up being such an emotionally laden word. Um, that idea, in, especially in the Latin, in Spanish, which I'm, I'm Mexican-American, so this idea that you can't actually say that without saying that you did it to yourself. The verb is reflexive, as prostitutes say. It's the same in the other Romance languages. And so there's this entire concept that if somebody is a prostitute, then they are prostituting themselves. And so then we come in and we start saying, well, what about the people who are enslaved in prostitution? So even just the, our words end up working against us. Um, so we've got people in prostitution, we've got guns, that's supposed to be drugs. Let's do a. That's a bird. Make it a fancy one. Okay, so guns, drugs, people, and this border. And we don't want them in here. Or we don't want them in here without having paid taxes, or we don't want them in here however it is that we that we don't want them in here. Well, because we don't want them in here, what we do is we prosecute you for bringing them in. You violated the sovereignty of my border. But then this contraband that we don't want, we're going to get rid of. Well, he's probably going to go to the zoo, actually. So good on him. Um, you know, we're going to melt down the guns. Uh, we're going to burn the drugs. And we're going to deport the immigrants. We're going to deport the, the immigrants in prostitution. We're going to deport the immigrants, just anybody who's an immigrant, who's not here, legally. 3P paradigm. Every one of us has a bubble of rights. That bubble of rights in the US context, the one that's relevant is the 13th Amendment, but in the international, that would be Article 4 of the Universal Declaration of Rights. And here in Australia, it's going to be the statutory prohibition against slavery. And this bubble of rights, the government is the guarantor of your rights. It's up to the government to prosecute the person who hurts you in this way because this is a crime against the state, not just against you. The response that flows from this is the idea that you 
need to be made whole. Because your bubble of rights has been punctured. And the government is basically repairing that. So what does that then demand? It doesn't demand deporting you. It demands restoring you. And so out of this 3P paradigm comes victim protections. Weirdly enough, it ends up being a law enforcement convention, a law enforcement treaty at the UN that ends up saying that there needs to be victim protections. It's not over in the Human Rights Council. It's not out of one of the development arms. It's the law enforcement side. And I think part of that is because people didn't see it as, oh, you're a bunch of do-gooders. Um, in fact, it kind of got hidden in the entire notion of, oh, well, we need this so that we can make cases. But of course, the real reason that we needed it is because you're putting people's rights back together. And so this idea of you focus on the exploitation, not on the movement, once you do that, you're, you have to look at victim protection. And it doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter why they were enslaved. It could be for sex trafficking, it could be for labor trafficking as long as they were enslaved. So this really then turns into all of the things that we think of as kind of the modern anti-trafficking and anti-slavery legislation, all of the different local conventions, etc., is the Palermo Protocol. Coming out of the Palermo Protocol over the last 20 years, we have seen, and this is more as much for business as anybody else, all the different ways in which this then gets enforced, that there's an awful lot of exposure out there. And what's interesting is that this exposure even, as our Oxfam friends can tell us, um, can end up being exposure that good actors can have. Not one thing that happened with that tragedy with the Oxfam employees in Haiti should be thought of as undoing the good that Oxfam has done in the world. And the other thing that I can tell you is, it ain't just Oxfam. Anybody who's doing development work around the world, who has people deployed in the field, who isn't looking for that is blind. At this point, I'd say they're willfully blind because the Palermo Protocol is 18 years old. And I think that's one of the reasons why the Oxfam scandal is a scandal is because people felt like at this point, when we're talking about transparency and supply chains, when we're talking about institutions like the church having to go out and deal with having hidden pedophilia, and other sexual abuse scandals. When we're talking about, and I know this is a sore subject to raise sport today in Australia, I apologize to all the cricket fans, uh, but when we're talking about the things that have happened in sport, both in the United States, in our gymnastics program, and in youth soccer in, London, in the UK, that idea of the betrayal of the people who are in power. So we've been talking a lot, and you've heard, I think, a lot in the Modern Slavery Act um, discussions about supply chain transparency. But what we're really talking about is institutional transparency. In that category, it's simply the institution happens to be businesses. And that's very important because those businesses are in a place that they can actually drive the goals that we want. It's one of the reasons why we have the business and human rights framework that John Ruggie and others have worked on. It's one of the reasons why we have end user liability, certainly in the United States anti-trafficking statute, where we can now, for the first time, start to sue companies if they turn a blind eye to this in their supply chain. And we're really looking forward to what we think is going to be coming out, uh, hopefully, in, in Australia in, in the coming years. Um, but basically what this slide should tell anybody who has a supply chain, anybody who has employees, 
is you've got to be careful because you may very well have at least a metaphorical filing cabinet with a whole bunch of hand grenades in it that have, over the last 20 years, just sat there. And as we open those drawers, we start to see things like what was happening under Oxfam's aegis 10 years ago in Haiti. That's not going to be the only explosion, I think, that we see. Institutional best practices. We see these things as being what works from around the world coming out of the, the Palermo Protocol. And again, this, it's an interesting idea. The development work in this area is at the village level. It's talking about how do you change cultural norms, cultural norms around girls' education, cultural norms about work, cultural norms about children, cultural norms about how men react and, and drive um, sexual assault, but also drive commercial sexual exploitation. Um, you know, shifting those things away from boys will be boys takes the kind of village level interventions where you can get the elders on board to actually sit, start shunning the men who laugh about going to prostitutes. At the same time, you have to think that that's not just something that you fund over there, but you're funding within your own, your own chain of command. And so, for instance, in the United States, our national plan of action um, our interministerial task force ended up looking at how would we punish American employees, people from the federal government, people from the military, etc. How would we prevent them from fueling the demand for sexual exploitation um, by going to prostitutes when they're up deployed or things like that? So that we didn't have American taxpayer money basically paying for these guys to have a good time, um, but to have a good time in a way that was creating not only diplomatic problems when it ends up on the front page, but basically keeping some of these red light districts afloat. Um, but also this idea of national referral mechanisms so that there's a way that's not dependent upon the goodwill of the individual cop or the individual immigration officer to take that person in for help, but rather that it's standard operating procedures. So a lot of this, I think, are things that to some degree are present in Australia, but I think that with the Modern Slavery Act, even more so, um, well, you have the, the opportunity to put these into place uh, through regulation. What's interesting from the Australian context, from the Australian development context, is that these are things that have been getting taught around the world, especially in Southeast Asia, especially in the Mekong, by Australians with Australian money. And yet these are not necessarily things that Australia has been doing at home. I think that, to me, is the big challenge now with the modern slavery legislation. If it's good enough for APTIP or RTIP or whatever the new acronym, it seems like it changes every few years, um, a phenomenal program that's made a lot of good in the Mekong subregion. But if it's good enough for APTIP to go into Myanmar and say, you need to set up an interministerial task force where you bridge the silos between your police forces, or if they're going into Thailand and saying, hey, why don't you let those women out of that shelter and let them work during the day, etc." Well, my attitude is the trafficking victims in Australia deserve the same level of expertise and skill here, especially the Australians. This is the thing that I, I want to be a little bit um, provocative here, because I think a lot of people have been thinking, A, this is a foreign affairs issue, 
and we're going to be in the lead on this. It's a pretty good spend, actually, that we've seen from Australian aid um, out into the rest of the region. Um, or they say, well, this is something that happens to foreigners, whether it's on a uh, student visa, whether it's on a temporary Pacific visa, whether it's on uh, one of the many different types of work programs. Um, but it doesn't happen to Australians. Or if it does happen to Australians, it happens to the indigenous or South Sea Island population. The United Kingdom, even more than the United States, I think, is a cautionary tale in thinking that way. They had this paradigm prior to revising their law with their modern slavery statute that was focused on that old 1880s way of thinking about moving prostitutes. They were kind of the equivalent of the British in Singapore in 1941, looking out at sea with their binoculars while the Japanese on their bicycle were coming down the Malay Peninsula because they were sitting on top of a huge trafficking scandal with thousands of white British girls who were being enslaved by pimps in northern towns who had wooed them with love, but also with drugs, had brought them in, broken them in through rapes, and then had threatened, kept them in slavery, sex slavery, through horrible, horrible force, fraud, and coercion. And the Brits were so focused on that old paradigm and so focused on the notion of, the, oh, well, this can't happen to British girls. Or if it does, it's going to just be East Indian girls, or it's going to be folks from the West Indies, or it's going to be African uh, immigrant communities, etc. that they left those girls unprotected. And my attitude is that everybody in Australia, whether they are from the communities that you might think are vulnerable, or whether they are from the white community, they deserve the protection of that bubble of rights because it can happen to any of us. We've had cases in the United States with white American men who, any way that you slice and dice U.S. popular culture, white American men as a class do pretty well. We've had cases with white American men who, because they have de developmental disabilities, men in their 60s who have the IQ and the development of an eight-year-old child being found in poultry processing plants where they were originally stuck as part of a public charity scheme 40 years ago and kind of forgotten. And the people that were there just kept making money off of them. Kept making money off of them. And when we rescued them, everybody was like, oh my God, that can't happen in the United States. Those aren't Mexicans. We're like, well, welcome to the United States where just like in every other country, we are all one or two vulnerabilities away from suffering this crime. Some people might be three or four vulnerabilities away because of what class or what group they're in. But the structures that are in place, not only the structures that are in place to try to fight it, but the structures that push toward it end up allowing exploitation to continue. One of the ways to deal with that, to, we hope, change the underlying structures is this idea of transparency. Um, again, it flows very much from this concept of the business and human rights ethos. Um, but at the same time, it also flows from a lot of the anti-corruption work. So my predecessor um, from the Bush administration as ambassador ended up going and uh, working at Freedom House. Um, Freedom House, like Transparency International, um, do a lot of work around um, basically what corruption and government misconduct 
um, how those can end up flourishing. And so we've seen the lessons from that, as well as uh, these lessons from the business and rights community, that transparency is a way to change the information monopoly. I'm becoming increasingly convinced that one of the reasons, one of the places that the slavers exploit is not really the violence. The violence is the way that they drive home the point. But what they're really making their money on is they have this much information and their victims have this much information. They know where the job is. They know where the farm is. They know who the sheriff is or the local cop. And so when the person runs, they can't go to the local cop because maybe they're the, the person who can interpret for the local cop happens to be the wife of the crew leader or the wife of the labor hire broker. That happens. We've heard just in, in meetings in, in Parliament today um, of several instances in which people have run. People have tried to go to the police and the police basically are just like, yeah, I know that girl or that had never happened. Go away. And so that idea of the information monopoly. The information monopoly also is between us and the people we buy from. Everybody in here who's wearing anything with cotton in it, and even if you're wearing performance wear, it probably has cotton because the thread is usually cotton. Everybody probably is wearing something touched by a slave. And we're all people who deal with development work. Some of us actually fight slavery for a living. And yet I cannot divorce my consumption from that, in no small part because I don't have good enough information. Once I have information, then I can start holding folks accountable. And so that's what we're seeing in the United States a little bit, very light touch in California, and moved over to the United Kingdom, a little heavier touch, and hopefully now something more robust here in Australia. But again, we don't want it the, the perfect to be the enemy of good. We need to get something that starts flushing these people out. I saw an article today um, that one of the groups in the UK sent around about their research. And everybody had been saying, oh my God, this is horrible. Only about a third of the companies that were supposed to do their <coughs> filings under the UK Modern Slavery Act have actually done their filings. Well, A, that's a data point right there because that allows us to go shame the other two thirds. But the ones who did, that first couple of thousand statements under the Modern Slavery Act is a, a heck of a lot more information than we have ever had about what countries are doing. And so folks at the universities in the UK are coming through all of that. People from government are actually keeping an eye on that. And I think that that for us is the one of the things, is how do we bring out all of this information? Especially because we have to make sure that we're not greenwashing. I've been out of government for about a year now. I'm not a diplomat anymore, um, but I you know, still was raised <coughs> Um, and so I'm using that word as opposed to uh, the word that I learned long ago working on a ranch. I guess those are stations here. Um, we used a little bit saltier of words to describe uh, what some of these filings are. We need to make sure that people are not putting in, shall we say, greenwashed filings. Um, because right now, we're kind of dependent upon all of us calling that out. We have to be able to point to it and say, that's greenwashing. And eventually, we can come up with structures so it's not just the consumer that's saying that, but it's the government itself. If you file a report that's greenwashing, that's lying about what you're really doing, you're committing perjury. A couple of prosecutions for perjury or a couple of, of uh, violations of the Corporations Act when a director has signed off on something, I think that you're going to see 
a lot of companies coming into compliance a lot quicker. So thinking about what the regulatory and political and legal oversight of this is going to be. And I think that this is very much the future. But let me show you what I think is really the future. This is something to watch. I'd like to think that this is the future. The jury is still out. Alliance 8.7 is one of the, the SDGs under uh, SDGA. Um, that notion of taking immediate and effective uh, measures to eradicate this problem and to rid this by 2025. I've been doing this long enough that I'm not sure if 2025 uh, is I mean, end child labor by 2025. I would like to end rape by 2025 as well, but the new rapist was probably born today who will not commit that crime until 2035 or 2040. And we need to be there, hopefully to prevent him from doing it and to punish him if he does. Same thing with child labor, same thing with trafficking. Let's do everything we can to make it so that it is a thing of the past, but that we also have the tools to prevent it and to punish those who would still do it in the future. SDGs are good, Alliance 8.7 is good, but the bigger question is how does this go out in the real world? How does this go from the meetings that I go to? I like the meetings, so all my friends are at the meetings, um, and we all care about this. People from the ILO, people from the slavery world, uh, people from the UN, from the Vatican, etc. And we're all committed to this. But until we start to get the cop on the street being able to say that it is her most pressing need is to eradicate forced labor, her most pressing need might be dealing with that new traffic pattern that day. Or her most pressing need might be dealing with the burglaries that have been happening down in the Central Business District. Until everybody's hair is on fire around Alliance 8.7, at this point, it's largely us going to some fairly productive meetings. Well, how do we get that out in the real world? I think we get that in the real, out in the real world the way that we see in Immokalee, Florida. Immokalee, Florida was ground zero for modern slavery, not just in the modern era. This was ground zero for slavery back in the 1940s under sharecropping. It was ground zero for, modern, for slavery in the wake of our Civil War while people were using debt bondage to re-enslave the African-American community. And it was, modern, it was ground zero for slavery before our Civil War. Why? Because it is one of the most fertile, one of the most temperate places in the United States. It's a wonderful part of Florida where it's hot and humid and warm. I think it would be called Queensland if it was here. Um, and a lot of the things, unfortunately, that you hear from people up in Queensland as far as how workers are getting treated are the things that were happening here. So basically a slavery case every year, starting in 1994 with the Flores case. The Flores case, by the way, is where we learned the things that went into our Trafficking Victims Protection Act. It's where we learned the things that ended up going into the Palermo Protocol as far as multi-jurisdictional approach, working hand in glove with the non-governmental organizations, bringing the service providers in and actually ceding some law enforcement control. The fact that immigration was not the rationale for this, but slavery was, all of that comes out of this case, United States versus Flores. It was one of those types of cases. Second generation of US v. Flores, the Cadena case, takes this over into sex trafficking. The third generation, it goes international. When one of my colleagues gets assigned in the, the tribunal in The Hague for the former Yugoslavia and brings the Focha case, prosecutor versus Kovacs, which takes these concepts and deals with the sex slavery of more than 200 women 
in the village of Foča for the Yugoslavian army. And so you see these cases as being kind of the seminal cases in the United States, but then also out into the UN system. More importantly, the survivors from this case band together. They go to the big growers, and the big growers say, go away. Nobody's going to tell us what to do. So the survivors from this case then go to the big buyers, and eventually they get Taco Bell. And from Taco Bell, they get McDonald's. And from McDonald's, they get Burger King. And eventually they get the big supermarket chains. And eventually they get Walmart, the biggest retailer in the world. Then they go back to the growers. And the growers have to say, well, yes, we like to sell to all of those people, because if we don't sell to all those people, we're not selling to anyone. And so now we suddenly have a circumstance where in the last six years, the fair food program, which is what was set up, with the power of the purchasing order from those big, big companies, and the ability of the worker-led auditing to shut down the buy. We see a lot of multi-stakeholder initiatives in which the buyers say, well, we're gonna make sure, we're gonna have audits, and we're gonna have auditing reports, and then we will make sure that our growers or our uh, factories know what we have found, and we will help them remediate. The difference here is that they say that but they say, but we'll do that after we have suspended your ability to sell to these big retailers for 90 days. And so they have the power of the purchasing order and they're not afraid to use it. Now, part of that is because it's a judge who runs it, a, a retired judge who spent years basically telling defendants, look, I care about you. I think you deserve another chance. I'm going to put you into drug treatment. But if you flunk out of drug treatment, you're going to prison. And so Judge Laura has the ability and the, to actually think that way. I'm going to be compassionate. I'm going to give you what you need to succeed. But then if you do it anyway, you're going off the river. Same thing. I'm going to make you, the grower, successful. Six years in, what do we see? We don't just see no more slavery cases there. We also see almost no sexual assault thing in the past and almost no sexual harassment. Indeed, one of the, one of the farms that I used to investigate pretty regularly, I was talking to one of their managers who had the job of somebody who I had put in jail 18 years ago. And normally I would have gone there thinking that I was gonna investigate him and put him in jail. And instead he was telling me that he'd gotten a phone call a few months before from a male worker who was now in Michigan in the United States, which is about 1500 miles away, very different part of the US, who was working in blueberries, not in tomatoes. And the man called him and said, you know those trainings that we had where you told us how we shouldn't treat the, the women, the, our coworkers, because they were our coworkers and they should be treated with respect? And he's like, yeah, I know, I know the trainings. He's like, well, there's a boss up here that's doing that and we are all very upset about that because we don't feel like the, the women on our crew should have to go through that. Stereotype, stereotype of people from my community, the Hispanic community, is that we men are relatively macho. In fact, macho is a Spanish word. We're macho. But the idea that these guys, it had sunk in enough over the years of being on those farms, the fair foods farms, where they felt like there was a different way to do it. What's weird is that these folks are now being seen, the growers, much to the chagrin of us who 
had to deal with them 10 years ago and still think that they're kind of jerks underneath it. Mm. The growers are deservedly becoming part of the heroes of this story because they are becoming employers of choice. When the big hurricane hit last fall, almost a direct hit in Immokalee, everybody said, oh my God, nobody's going to be here to pick the crops because they're all going to leave because they, their trailers all got flooded out. And there was a woman on the radio when they were asking me exactly that, like, so you're going to leave, right? You're just a migrant worker. You're going to leave. She's like, no, I want to stay here because this is the only place in the country I know where I can work on a farm and I can be safe. And to me, that's the lesson of all of this. The first time I met these people, and these are, you know, four foot ten Guatemalan, phenomenally strong, little tiny people who have hearts the size of this room and will the size of this room. And they have brought the biggest companies in the world to bear on these growers. This is something that I think that can happen in Australia. We're seeing it, it's starting to happen up in Vermont in the dairy industry, starting to move over into Texas. This is the new face of law enforcement. This is the new face of business and human rights. And I think this is the new face of development, which is its worker-led social responsibility. And so for me, what I wanted to bring to you, and I hope that you can take away from this, when you're thinking about development work, when you're thinking about transnational law enforcement, even when you're thinking about corruption, is when we listen to the workers, when we incorporate their voice, we actually help knit together that bundle of rights around them and we knit together a bundle of rights for the communities and the countries in which we're working. Thanks, everybody. Thank you very much. Um, a, a very um, topical and a ultimately um, somewhat optimistic um, take on, on the issue of, of anti-slavery. Um, we've got a few minutes left for questions. Has anyone got this burning question back there? Thank you so much. Fantastic presentation. Thank you. You mentioned that you spoke to Parliament today. I was wondering if you could share with us some of your key recommendations for Parliament in the um, Slavery Act that they're discussing right now. Of course. Um, so now there are granularities that I will leave to the experts, people who've been dealing on the, on the granular level. Um, just as far as kind of me, I don't represent anybody anymore, um, you know, but just me having had that role and looked around the world, the things that I told and I talked to, to folks from uh, both labor and, and the liberals. Um, first of all is that notion of moving away from the immigration lens uh, to the slavery lens, full on at this point. Um, that that kind of overarching re reconceptualization um, everything else can then flow out of that. Because then that tells you, once you've focused this over onto slavery, it then kind of demands what one would do with reporting. It demands what one would do with public procurement. It demands what one would do uh, with um, disclosures, et cetera. Because if you're talking about unfair employment practices that flow out of immigration, then it would be okay to maybe have a little bit of that and you're thinking about, well, how much of that are we willing to have, whether it's in our national supply chain or our businesses' supply chain, or you know, how much uh, can we, of that can we necessarily afford vis-a-vis -vis the, the service provision and the, and the uh, policing. 
If you move it over into slavery, the answer has to be, it's the answer that you have to tell the Australian taxpayer, and it's the answer that, that the big companies have to tell the consumers, which is the only amount of slavery that's reasonable to be in your supply chain or to be in your society is zero. Um, and so I think that re reconceptualization um, as kind of the first and biggest uh, thing um, flowing out of that then uh, becomes, you know, that concept of not looking and not getting so kinked up in each one particular visa scheme or each one particular way of bringing folks in, because then you really end up having those gaps that the labor hire folks and the unscrupulous crew leaders take advantage of. If they can have one person from a student visa, one person from a backpacker, a couple of folks who are undocumented, and somebody from a South Sea Island on a temporary visa there, all of which are being governed with different schemes, then they're, they're going to be able to exploit the, all of those differences. And so that notion of having something that's unified um, and across the board. Um, I think that's, I mean, without getting into the kind of individual more granular discussions, um, you know, to me, that's kind of the overarching uh, message that I wanted to leave uh, for our parliamentary partners. Um, flowing out of that, then, I think, becomes not letting the perfect be the enemy of good. Um, in the United States context and in the British context and others, um, there's been that notion of let's get something done and then let's get out and start implementing it and then circle back and tweak it if we need to. Um, because every year that goes by without having that reconceptualization is a year that people get hurt. So let's get something, um, and then implementation will be the, the real game. And that's implementation, whether it ends up being you know, a year or two from now, whether that's a liberal government, whether that's a, a labor government, or whether that's some kind of a coalition government. Um, and then finally, the thing is, is that this is something where there's credit to go around for everybody. This is properly a bipartisan uh, or multi-partisan um, approach because it goes to your values as Australians. It goes to who you are as a country. It doesn't go to who somebody is as a liberal, who somebody is as labor, or any of the other parties. Gentlemen in the front, then over to Stephen. Thanks, very, very interesting. Um, I also worked on trafficking for a long time in the American region since the oh. 2000s. And exactly. I have lots of questions, but I'm going to limit to one. So, um, <laughs> you know, the two key words here are, is human trafficking and modern slavery, it seems. And, and uh, you're kind of hinting at, at this at the end, I think. I'm wondering if you could say a bit more about, on the one hand, it's used interchangeably often, mm -hmm. but at the same time, there seems to be kind of a move from one to the other a little bit. And you get debates about what is the right term. So Anne Gallagher, for example, the men will probably know her. Mm -hmm. She has sort of publicly been sort of very for trafficking, but critiquing modern slavery. And then you have all this will take it opposite kind of view. So I'm just wondering if you can, if you can speak to that a little bit more about uh, how these two different terms kind of connect and how they potentially might be in conflict as well. Yeah, I mean, I think that typically, um, and I'm going to give you an extremely American common law answer as opposed to a, um, a civil law answer. And I always give Anne a hard time because even though she was trained in the common law, um, she often analyzes trafficking and all of the different nuances almost as though she, as she was trained in the continental system, um, where that idea that you, in the common law system, you kind of wrestle toward the need of the case figure out what's just, and then you kind of back out of it and figure out what tools you should use. In the civil law system, it's if those tools don't exist, then I can't do something. Um, it's much more constrained. Um, I think that one of the things that 
you know, Anne was working for Mary Robinson when we were negotiating in Vienna. Um, and this is an argument that has gone back to those days between us on the American side and Anne and, and some others. For us, this was simply a way to update our slavery statutes. Um, the, what is called the Human Trafficking Statute, Section 1590 of our criminal code, basically doesn't get used because it, it says that it's illegal to move or transport someone for the purposes of holding them in servitude. So just charge them with holding them in servitude. And so that's what we do. Because why, if, you know, under American law, and I'm not sure if you ever heard this from Al Moskowitz, um, who also had these arguments with Anne when he was working for her on the Aptek project. Um, if you have to prove three elements in court, those are three ways that the judge or the jury can go sideways and you lose. If you have to prove four elements in court, it is actually not just one more way. It's the combination of all those elements. It's almost like a um, force multiplier. So anytime you can get to a case with having the, the smallest number of things you have to prove, unless there's a huge reason to. And so what we've seen in the US context is there's very little extra that we gain from charging an offense that is the movement for exploitation. Because you always have to show the exploitation. And if you can show that they intended to exploit, then it's just an attempted enslavement. Um, if they succeeded in exploiting, then it's enslavement. Um, so having this proxy, which basically fetishizes movement, it leads to that policy mistake and that operational mistake of going out and looking for the movement. And so if people just can start looking for slaves, they can tell the story by saying, here's what happened in the village and here's how they all got here. But making it so that you could lose the case because you might not make your elements as far as what happened between Phnom Penh and the um, fish packing shed or something, as opposed to just saying they were enslaved in the fish packing shed. Yeah, I think that for us, that's one of the reasons why going in for the kill on the slavery, as opposed to that proxy of the trafficking. And, and others, I think, have always taken the position, they're like, well, we need the proxy because there might not, you might not be able to, to prove the slavery. What we've seen in the field, I think, is the opposite. It's, it's easier to prove the slavery if we're out there looking for them where they're enslaved. So it's kind of a, what, what angle we're looking at it from. Did you have a question and maybe one one more, although we are just about running out of time? Oh, thank you. Yeah, this might be out of ignorance, but just especially thinking about Australia, you know, what do you think is the advantage of, like you said, we should look for slavery in Australia as against looking for exploitation of workers? There's clearly a lot of exploitation under payment, but is that we already have laws against that? Should we be campaigning on that, or should we be framing it in terms of slavery, which seems to be your argument? I think it's both. Um, you know, one of the things that we've seen. So one of the standards that um, the folks in the coalition came up with, and I'll, I'll show this up over here. Um, oh, I guess I won't because my, I left this over here. Um, so one of the standards that the Fair Food Council um, looks at is a thing called cupping. Basically, if this is that bucket, you see her holding that bucket, when it's up there, that's about a 15% extra on it, the weight of that bucket. So that bucket is 32 pounds, which is what, 14 kilos, give or take. Um, 
And people were getting paid basically the same amount as in 1971 for that. Um, the crew leaders were insisting that you pile it on top and that it not be flush on top. And then they were giving you the, the going rate, 32 cents or so, um, for a bucket. And at the end of the day, you got your, all your tokens from the buckets that you had, had handed up to them. Remember, these are 105 pound, four foot eight, four foot 12 or 10 Guatemalans who have this huge bucket that they're, that they're lifting up to a truck somewhere around 300 times a day. The crew leaders were basically stealing 15% of their load. Um, and when the standard came in saying, and this is not something that we knew about and that, or that we were thinking about, our Department of Labor wasn't thinking about this, the buyers weren't thinking about this, but the only people who knew about it were the workers. And the workers said, we're getting beaten up when we're not cupping our buckets. That's when the worst of the beatings were happening, is when they would refuse to do that, because that's where the crew leaders were making their money, because they were basically siphoning off the money that was flowing from the grower to the worker. And this crew leader was in between, siphoning off that 15%. And so somebody could say that that is a wage theft problem, and that was just a general exploitation problem. But what happened is that once they started auditing against that standard and started stamping out the practice of cupping, the violence went down in the fields. So what appeared to be an exploitation fix, an exploitation aspect, ended up having a slavery result in it. And so I think that, to me, is, is why this notion of you know, kind of the indivisibility of these concepts. Otherwise, what you have is you end up getting uh, the remit trap. It's the Kiwi inspector on the boats who sees the rapes and the beatings of the Indonesian crew members by the, the Korean captain and his officers. And when he tries to report it, gets told, your remit is environmental standards. Your job is to count fish. Get back to work. And so then another 10 years goes by, and we have massive amounts of slavery on the long line um, boats down in the in the New Zealand uh, EEZ, uh, because even the guys that are trying to do the right thing from the government are being told that's not your mandate, that's not your remit. So I think that that's one of the problems as we tried to say, is this labor exploitation, is this slavery, is this you know X, Y, and Z, that when that remit trap happens, it's usually going to end up being the, the workers who end up paying the price for us having made those decisions, because then we just keep driving until we see the thing that we're assigned to. So this unified thing, I think on the back end, when it comes to time for enforcement, we can say, okay, wage theft, let's get the, the labor ombudsman in here or the fair work ombudsman in here and you know issue whatever kind of order they would need to issue as opposed to enslaving uh, an enslavement prosecution with the AFP. But on the front end, there needs to be that idea that anybody that's interacting with that, that farm or with those workers is able to be looking at all of it holistically, and then we can sort it out later. So it's kind of turning that remit problem around and saying that all of it is our remit, and we're going to look at everything, and then later we'll figure out what we should do, rather than having the what is our analysis of the, of the particular coverage then tell us not to proceed on a particular 
investigation or a particular intervention. It's just kind of switching it. So we do that at the end instead of the beginning. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. 